Hi, this is Mike Spivey of the Spivey Consulting Group. It is Tuesday, January 26th, and for our Tuesday sort of AMA podcast, I'm going to discuss three topics. The first are for international applicants applying this cycle. Will things be more or less competitive? The second is going to be for how do you figure out, determine, get to know a school's culture during the pandemic when you can't visit. And then similarly related, someone mentioned that they've seen a number of sample letters of continued interest and many speak to, you know, during my visit, so-and-so, this is how I fit with the school. And if that doesn't happen, how would I navigate a change in the letter of continued interest? So let me get right to it. The international applicant, JD applicant, let me clarify, because we haven't seen any change on the LLM front. They seem to be being admitted at the same pace. There may or may not be a change on the international JD front. We're not certain. You can see two scenarios. Incidentally, every law school is different from the next law school. So my guess is the two scenarios I give you all are going to be both applicable in today's reality, but let me just give them to you. The first scenario is the law school admissions office says, you know, we are gatekeepers to the admissions profession. And our job is to determine whether this applicant could enhance our school, succeed in law school, and probably most importantly, be a helpful, value-added, successful lawyer. So we're going to read applications through that lens. And if the applicant is from any country, if they fit through that sort of matrix of you know value-added, successful law student at our school, successful lawyer in their community or any community, then we're going to admit them. So in that scenario, nothing has changed. And now it is a more competitive cycle, but in that scenario, it's no more or less competitive for international applicants. And I'm pretty confident, knowing a lot of people in admissions, that there are schools who are reading JD international applicants just that way. In the second scenario, you see a world where vaccinations are taking place at different rates in different countries. You see a world where different countries are responding to the pandemic with different modalities of lockdown, travel bans, etc. You see a world where visas are taking longer to get. And in that scenario, I think what you might see is you would see more pressure on the admissions office to say, Let's hold off on some of the international emits, follow the progress of the global pandemic, and then you would see probably maybe some later international emits. I might be in the wrong here because I'm not an epidemiologist or virologist, although I talk to them more than I ever would have anticipated in my career. But I'm still pretty optimistic that by the summer, things globally and in America will be a lot flatter than they are currently. And you've seen the decline in most countries, and you've seen the recent decline in this country, the United States. So if people are looking at the same data I'm looking at, if people are talking to, and I doubt they are, but if people are talking to the same epidemiologists that I'm talking to, well, there were four vaccines scheduled to come out. It looks like there's bad news on the Merck front, but there's still three. And the third's just going to require one shot. All of which is to say, if deans of admissions are factoring this in, you see a scenario where we return to normal, the world, by the fall, and there would be no reason to hold off on admitting international JD students. This is a four-minute way of saying, I'm not quite sure. It's 
probably a mix of those first two scenarios. Some being international applicants are read no differently. Some being there might be a pause to consider whether they might matriculate. And then you can go into all these other nuanced scenarios, which I'm not going to get into. For those who can't obtain a visa or delay them the visa, would they have a remote? You know, there's pedagogical and grading difficulties with that scenario, but I'm not saying it's impossible because some schools had both remote and online options this past semester. To be determined, I hope it was helpful even though I didn't speak with an exact answer. So the second question I wanted to answer before I get to the letter of continued interest is, what are the best ways to get to know a school's culture during the pandemic when we can't visit? To begin with, I still think there might be an opportunity to visit in the summer for more and more schools. And I think applicants and admitted students should be aware that you can generally ask for a um, extension of your seat deposit deadlines during the normalist of situations. So I imagine in this cycle, if you were to say to a school, I know my seat deposit deadline is coming up in April. I really want to visit the school and I think I might be able to in May. Could I get a seat deposit extension until the end of May? I would venture to guess that schools would be the most generous in granting such extensions. But let's say you can't visit. To me, the best way to know a school is not vis-a-vis their admissions office because I used to be in admissions. I used to be in charge of admitted students programs. I'm telling you right now, no school puts their unlikable professors and their unlikable students in front of admitted students. Of course not. It's the exact opposite. It's rolling out the red carpet, putting out the faculty members that are beloved to the students, putting them in a mock class about an exceptionally nuanced but cool subject, space law or whatever, putting out the students that are the most hyped up, excited about where they are. So that's not a realistic preview of a day in the life. The best way to get to know the culture of a school is to talk to students at the school. You can do that vis-a-vis message boards. You could go to Reddit Law School and say, hey, I'm considering attending Princeton Law School. Congratulations, by the way, to that applicant that got admitted to Princeton Law who was posting a meme a day. You know, could you tell me about it? You know, the anonymous nature of the internet can be such a pain at times, right? Because people can say anything untrue. But at times, it can be such a blessing. I mean, because anonymously, people are going to give you their real input versus a party line. You can reach out vis-a-vis LinkedIn. You can reach out vis-a-vis, you know, I don't even know what these chat groups are, but whatever. You can join a chat group and reach out. I would talk to students arbitrarily, not students that the law school assigns to talk to you. And they will. You're going to get admit calls. You're going to get admit emails from student groups. But again, that's not the 360-degree preview. That's the 180-degree preview. It stops right at the happiest of students. So talking to people is a great way to get to know the culture of the school if you can't visit. So that aligned pretty well with the third question, which is a really, I think, spot-on and important question for this cycle. The question is, I've seen a lot of sample letters of continued interest, Loki's, incidentally, the name of my dog, that discuss visiting the school. Obviously, that won't happen this year. How should we approach letters of continued interest this year? Well, it might happen this year. You might be able to visit schools to be determined. But I agree, there are many scenarios 
that you need to send a letter of continued interest in February or March where you won't have had the opportunity to visit the school. Let me cage it in this terms because I was thinking about this the other night. If you email a busy admissions officer a long-winded question, you're essentially giving them more work, right? They can either ignore it and feel guilty or they can answer a long question with a long email and that's cutting into 30 minutes of their time spent with their family because, you know, they're working remotely, time doing the stuff they like to do in their personal life. So why not call? I'm such a big fan of if you can't visit an admissions office, speaking to an admissions officer on the phone. Let me give you sort of a way of looking at this. I haven't only done admissions. I've done career services. When I was a dean of career services, I would call hiring partners and say, hey, I have a student for you. I'd love for you to talk to her on the phone. They're awesome. They fit with the culture of your firm. And I just think a 20-minute conversation might open your eyes to someone who might not necessarily be on your competing firm's radar and would be a home run hire for your firm. I would very often hear the following response. I can't believe in a good way that you're going to bat and willing to call for your students because no other law schools are doing this. It's so similar in admissions, particularly generationally. And, and you know, I don't think many people who apply to law schools are going to pick up the phone and call an admissions office and say, hey, I, I, I know how busy you all are. I know there's been a lot of change. I won't take up more than five to 10 minutes of their time. I'm an admitted student or I'm a waitlisted student or I'm a held student. I would love to just talk to an admissions officer and express my interest in the school. If the person who answers the phones doesn't do it, there's no harm. You're in the exact same scenario as if you hadn't called. And if they do connect you with an admissions officer, and if you're you know, pleasant and poised and professional and inquisitive, you're going to have a wonderful conversation with someone who has the ability to pull a lever and admit you. Furthermore, you can take parts of that conversation. I was so fortunate to talk to Dean Loki, who told me about this program and this faculty member, and that becomes your letter of continued interest. You're using the school's words right back to them, incidentally, what they want to hear as part of your letter of continued interest. Now, you can email, and you may get a response. I just personally would prefer a phone call. Everything I do in this world, I have sort of a hierarchy. The more important my ask is, the more I try to do the ask, A, in person, B, over the phone, and then C, by email. So if it's important to me, and if it's really important to me, let's say it's a health issue, I try to go see my doctor. If I can't see him, I try to talk to him on the phone. Worst case scenario, we email back and forth. I'm, imagine if you're listening to this long-winded podcast and law school admission, understandably, is, I mean, if it's important to me, I'm certain it's important to everyone listening to this. Calling an admissions office and trying to speak to an extroverted admissions officer who probably enjoys speaking to applicants and probably misses admissions travel where they get to meet a lot of applicants is the way to go. The final thing I wanted to say, because I just had this conversation with a former dean of a law school This person had listened to the thing we did where we interviewed a bunch of current applicants. And this former dean had mentioned like how anxious everyone sounded. And they mentioned how it's like it's so understandable because this is a very ambiguous process. And probably, you know, in college you get binary grades. You have a binary timeline or a set timeline. So 
I think some of the admissions anxiety, a lot of it obviously is due to changes due to the global pandemic and changes due to the competitive and slow cycle. But some of it is also a function of what he and I were talking about, which is it's the ambiguity, the non-linearity, and the non-responsivity of the process. So let me just briefly address all three of those. Well, essentially it's two. Admissions is ambiguous. There are people with the exact same numbers, some who have already heard decisions, some who have not, some who have been admitted, and some who have been waitlist. Because there's many things at play. The individual school's applicant pool, there's the quality of your interviews, there's the quality of your applications. So it's ambiguous. There's nothing we can do about that. You can't control the ambiguousness of the process. Suffice to say, knowing about it, knowing that schools probably have to make 60 to 70 to 80 to 85% more admits going forward, while we don't know the pace, we do know that there's a lot of admits coming. The second part is about that, is about the pace. It is a slow process, and many people applying to law school, unlike me, unlike deans of admission, unlike deans of law schools, grew up with immediate responsivity. And I bring this up in the most important and hopefully empathetic ways possible. Pace does not determine results. So the more I think applicants can understand that while you might hope for a, you know, a December submission and a January decision, that is not how admission decision makers think about things. And they generally don't think about things as far as I need to turn around these admits ASAP because most schools realize that the research conducted in this area shows that early decisions, quick, rapid admission decisions, do not determine or influence yield, right? So let's say you get admitted by the 10th ranked law school in September. In September, you're going to be excited. Oh my God, I'm, I'm, what a quick turnaround. I really want to go to this school. But then when the number two ranked law school admits you, the data, the research in this area would tell us that you're kind of more apt to forget about the 10th ranked law school. And all of a sudden, that five-month wait you had to hear from the second ranked law school just vanishes overnight. It's a distant memory, and schools know this. So, you know, they're not in a responsivity rush to admit. They want to go at the pace that's best suited for them to measure their sort of the mix of their class. What I mean by all of this is none of this is about you, it's about the process. And the process, understandably, is frustrating and nerve wracking, but you can't control it. And every year, whether the cycle is competitive, highly competitive, or not competitive, there are a ton of people who feel like, you know, it's the word I keep hearing is, am I doomed? There are a ton of people who in January feel like they're doomed, who in February, March, April, May, June, July, August, that's how long this stuff stretches out, who all of a sudden go from feeling doomed to feeling just incredibly blessed and lucky and going to exactly where they think they need to be. So that's going to happen to a number of people listening to this podcast. It's going to happen to a number of people who haven't had decisions from a lot of schools. And it's going to happen to people who haven't had decisions from any schools. Even in the most competitive of cycles, there are many, many examples of very happy later cycle decisions that end up in the best kind of ways. So hang in there. I hope this was helpful. This was Mike Spivey of the Spivey Consulting Group. <laughs>